Greg. I am one of the co-lead pastors here. And as always, it is a delight and a joy to be here with each and every one of you as we engage together uh, with God. Uh, The past few weeks, we have been out of our uh, sort of normal rhythm of sermon series, and we start a new series, and we start a new series. Um, And what we've done instead is we've taken last week and this week, and we've kind of jumped into uh, the church calendar. And and although we've had sermon series before that have been tied to the church calendar, uh, this is not often that we do this where we take two weeks and just uh, jump in with the church calendar. So last week, Rich taught on Pentecost. It was Pentecost Sunday and taught about how that event that we call Pentecost changed the lives of the people who were following Jesus, but also how it changed the lives of the people who were around the people who were following Jesus and how those events changed those people's lives and so on and so on until it got to us, changed our lives, and now it's changing the lives of the people around us. And this week, uh, around the world, people are celebrating, as Brian mentioned, Trinity Sunday. And so we thought it would be a good idea to hang out with them and do the same. So we're going to be looking at the Trinity, but not just the sort of the idea of the Trinity or the reality of the Trinity or however you want to describe that. But, but really what, what we want to discover is what does it mean that God is Trinity and how does that shape the, the sort of mission and life of his people and the people who follow him. And so that's what we're going to be uh, exploring today. Uh, Before we do that, though, will you please uh, pray with me? Dear God, I give you great thanks for your presence in our lives, um, that we are not left alone, um, but that you are ever-present with us, and and, and that you, um, your word says that you speak to us from a a place of closeness that we don't even have words to describe, that, that that the intimacy we can have with you is, is so close that we don't even know how to say it. But I pray it's from that place of nearness, that place of intimacy, that you would speak to us today. That we would hear clearly from you. Um, and that we would have a sense of your closeness, a sense of your presence. That you would open our, our minds and our hearts and our imaginations and our dreams Um, And in that process, that we would become more like you. I pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are going to spend a little bit of time, though, talking about what this word Trinity and what what that means. And so if you look in the dictionary, there's two versions for the Trinity. There is the uppercase and the lowercase. And the lowercase one simply means like a group of three or threefold. Uh, So... um, uh, some of you may know I, I, I'm a comic book fan. There used to be a comic book in DC Comics called Trinity, and it was their three big characters. It was Wonder Woman, Superman, and Batman, all as a team. And it was about their relationship and how they worked to save the world, and they fought sometimes, and they had to deal with all this stuff. But it was called Trinity because it was three, right? So anytime uh, the lowercase Trinity, it's, it's like threefold, three things. Um, but the uppercase version in the dictionary is really different. It says this. It says, uh, Trinity uppercase is the union, the union of three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, in one Godhead or the threefold personality of the divine being. Now, when I read that, uh, it makes no sense to me, right? It doesn't seem extremely helpful. I mean, I have some identifying terms, but now I have this new one called the Godhead uh, and divine being, and all these other things are thrown in there. So, So what does it mean? Is it, is it just that God exists as three distinct persons and yet is one complete being? He's three in one? Well, yes, it is just that. 
Um, and, uh, but within that, there are some things that I think are interesting, and specifically for what we want to talk about today, that there are three distinct persons, and yet they are one. And so there's this sense of, of interaction between them where one is never uh, trying to push the others down. Right? There's not a sense of like, uh, in our world, when we think about groups, there's often people who kind of move to the top, whether it's because they're more talented or because they kind of are trying to do that and they're kind of working their way up what we call the corporate ladder, and sometimes we shove other people down to do those things. But within the Trinity, they don't do that, right? And even when we think about our, our football team, the Seahawks, right, we think of a couple specific people, even though they would say they work as a team. There's a couple people we think about as the leaders of that team, right? We think of Russell Wilson. We think of Richard Sherman. We think of Earl Thomas, right? Some of these people who are often more associated with being the leaders on the team. But within the Trinity, it doesn't work that way. There's, there's not anyone who's like the leader of the team, but there is this coexistence where they don't try to dominate over one another. There's an equality, and yet they're still distinct and unique. There's this interplay, this movement back and forth where sometimes they make space for the other one, and sometimes the others make space for a different one, but it's all out of respect. It's all out of care. It's all out of support and love. Now, throughout history, people have tried to find ways to depict this, this interaction and this relationship, whether it's been in some form of art like a, a painting or music or a sculpture of some kind. Uh, legend has it that St. Patrick used to talk about the three-leaf clover as an image of, of the Trinity. People have talked about eggs, like you have the shell and the yolk and the white. Uh, people have talked about water, so it's got three stages. It can be ice or it can be steam or vapor or it can be uh, in its liquid form, right? So we have all these ways that we try to talk about it. And I would love, I would absolutely love to the deepest parts of my heart to spend a long time debating and working through all of those. Um, but we're just going to look at one today, uh, one piece of art that, that I think uh, has some amazing things to say about the Trinity. And it's um, this one we have down here, but I've got a bigger version of it. I've got a bigger version of it. It's coming. Is the little dongle thing still plugged in back there? Yeah? Okay, well, this is going to be interesting. It was there? Oh, it's the arrow. Who's teasing me with the arrow? Yeah. Okay, yep, so now, though, we need that to eventually go to that other one. Um, yeah, so, uh, but this is the image that I want us to start with, that it's, a, it's an icon by uh, Andrei Rublev, and uh, there's all kinds of things in this that we could talk about, about uh, the, the different members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and, and the different clothing and how that describes them, the different things behind them. One has a house, one has a tree, one has a hill. Those are all significant in identifying who those different characters are. But the thing I want us to notice this morning is that they're all eating together. Now, in uh, the ancient world, eating together was really significant. If you were eating together with someone, it was saying that they are, like, equal with you. There's, there's a level of equality that happens when you eat together. Thank you very much. Um, 
And, um, and so what we see here amongst the members of the Trinity is that they're all welcome at the same table. If you invited someone as an honored guest and you sat at the table with them, it was honoring them, but that guest was also honored to have you invite them. So there's a mutual honoring that happened around eating together. Now, the other thing I want us to, to notice is that right below the bowl of food, there's a little rectangle, um, and there's kind of the way the boards that the, it's the Father and the Spirit have their feet rested on, those boards come together, and it kind of draws your attention into that area. Um, and that area is empty, and it's, I'll explain why in a minute, because it's important uh, why that's there. So what I want to do, just for purposes of what we're going to talk about today, is kind of move. I'm going to shift some things around a little bit here. So we're going to do a little bit of a swap there, and we're going to make that go like that. And so this is another image uh, that's often used to, to show the Trinity. You've got three circles overlapping, uh, and then we've got them labeled uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. But... Um, when we think about the Trinity, one of the things that we have trouble with is that we don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. And so lots of people are like, oh, is this really true? And I think this passage, more than any other one, indicates, at least to me, this reality of the Trinity. In 1 John 4, 7 and 8, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, the reason why I think that this is such a clear uh, indication or, or a clear sort of pointer to this reality of the Trinity is that love cannot exist without an other, right? Love just alone, just one being, one person alone, there's, there's nowhere for love to go. So to say that God is love, if we, if we were going to describe God and say, well, God knows how to love, he can love, right? That would be different. But to say that God's very existence, God's nature is love, seems to me to be evidence that within him there is a community. There are this reality of these three distinct persons and yet unified uh, together. And so this is one of the verses that I like to talk about when we talk about uh, this reality because it's got a lot of implications for how, how we live and what we do. So we go back to this, and if we think about that space that was in the icon right below the bowl of food, that empty space, um, I think it's there, and I think other scholars agree too. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that like I'm a scholar. Uh, I think scholars agree, and I just tag along, is that um, this, this space is intended. It's, we're, our eyes are drawn there because there's something that's supposed to be there, and that's us. We're supposed to be at this table, not in the sense that we're other gods or anything like that, but that God has invited us to be part of that relationship. When I was a toddler, and some of you have heard this story before, um, when uh, one of my parents would, would get home from whatever they were doing, working or going out or whatever, um, the, the other one would hear the door and, and come into the front room to see who it is, and when they saw that it was the other one, they'd walk up, hug and kiss and greet each other, and as a two- or a three-year-old, I would run up to them, and I'd wrap one arm around the leg here, one up around the other leg here, and I would start shouting, my house, right? And I'm not sure exactly what I meant in this, because as a three-year-old, I could have meant anything. I could have meant... I don't want you doing this in my house. This is my house. Stop all this shenanigans, right? I don't need any of that business. Um, but what I like to think, because as adults we like to implant adult thoughts on our childhood, um, is, uh, is that I was trying to say something along the lines of, I see something here that looks really good that I want to, I want to know that too. 
right? I, like, I want this to be my house. Like, this love, this exchange I see between my parents, I would love to live in that. Now, again, that could just be me implanting, but we're going to roll with that because that's what I want it to be. Uh, so, but for us as humans... And, and being created by God and because of our own sin and our being lost in, in the world and becoming distant from God in this diagram I've pushed us back out of that space of closeness to God like we would be if we were sitting at the table and so there's a distance between us and God that we are, we are not near to him and we're not close to him and so what happens is, is God initiates a movement towards us. And it, I have it, that circle coming down towards humanity, going through all the circles of the Trinity to try to express that it's, it's not just one of them that is participating in this, but it is all of them. It is the whole group, that unified love, coming to humanity to try and bring us back to the table. Now, we see this really clearly in uh, one of the most famous verses in Scripture, John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So we have this, this reality that God is sending his son, that there's this movement through specifically the Son that comes out to humanity now, and it's an invitation Okay, we read in Isaiah 1.18. It says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And the idea here is like, again, it's like God sitting at a table and saying, Come to the table and bring everything you have. Bring your, your scrolls and your parchments and your iPads and your tablets and your Wikipedia and everything you've got, all your arguments, all your pains and joys and sorrows and, and, and happiness, all that stuff. Bring it to the table for a discussion with me and we will figure this out. We will reason. Come now, let us reason together. God doesn't say, come and listen to what I'm going to tell you. He says, come, let us reason together. Be involved. Participate in the conversation. I think too often we think about our conversations with God as really God just telling us what to do. God actually wants to hear from us. God wants us to participate. He wants us to put our thoughts to Him. And He wants to work with us uh, in those. So there's this invitation. Come, let us reason together. Now, what this invitation of that's sent by Jesus uh, as the Son does is it reveals God. It reveals uh, God's character and it reveals Him. If we read in Hebrews 1 uh, through 3, it says, In the past God has spoken to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and in various ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things through His powerful Word. And so from this, we, have, we see this, that, that it's not just revealing kind of that, that God's extending an invitation to us, but that Jesus himself is the exact representation of the Father. So we read in Scripture spots where it says, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so there's this revelation that happens, not just of the heart of God, but specifically of who God is. 
Now, the Spirit is also involved in how the Holy Spirit is going to empower us to do something. That the Spirit is involved in our lives, even in this extension of God's love towards us, even before we might do anything to respond to God. If we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it says, Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So there's this reality that even before we've started to make a movement towards God, even before we've started to respond to this invitation, uh, that the Spirit is working in our hearts, is stirring stuff up so that we can be empowered to say, Jesus is Lord. And again, what this does is it reveals the Father and the Son. So you can see these different movements through the Son and through the Spirit, how they reveal uh, other members of the Trinity. So this one reveals the Father and the Son. In Galatians 4, uh, it says this, But when the time had arrived that was set by God the Father, God sent His Son, born among us of a woman, born under the conditions of the law, so that He might redeem those of us who have been kidnapped by the law. Thus we have been set free to experience our rightful heritage. You can tell for sure that you are now fully adopted as His own children, because God sent the Spirit of His Son into our lives, crying out, Papa, Father, Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain that you are not a slave, but a child? And if you are a child, you are also an heir with complete access to the inheritance. And so now we have the Spirit empowering us to say, not only Jesus is Lord, but the Spirit coming into us and empowering us to say, Papa, Father, that we now identify ourselves as children of God, and that we are heirs of of uh, co-heirs along with Jesus to everything that God has. And so there's this reality that the Spirit empowers us to know God and to know uh, Jesus. Now, all that happens, that movement towards humanity, and so what do we do? Okay, well, Jesus says, first of all, He says, "And, and I, as I am lifted up from the earth will attract everyone to me and gather them around me. It's in John 12, 32, this idea that Jesus is reconciling all people and all things to himself. He's drawing everything and everybody to him. So there's this now, this movement by Jesus. We have empowerment by the Spirit. We have invitation by Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, and I'm drawing everyone to myself. That coupled with Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, that says, therefore... Brothers, since we have, should be brothers and sisters, sorry. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So there is this dual movement. Okay, by the Spirit and the Son, empowering, revealing, Jesus drawing all things to himself, along with this reality that we can, with assurance and confidence, walk into the presence of God. And so we move, being led and empowered by the the Spirit and the Son, back to the table, back to that spot where we're seated with God. Now, I don't know how many of you have experienced this. It was pretty common in my life uh, growing up, whether it be at Thanksgiving or some other large gathering, that there was like an adult's table and a kid's table, right, for the meals. And, and when you're a kid, you sit at the kid's table, and the kid's table seems awesome. Lots of fun, people throwing food, lots of jokes, seems great. Now, when I first moved to the adult table, 
It was intimidating because they were talking about business. My, my, my dad and his friends were talking about their businesses and politics were being kicked around and the, the family issues and all this stuff was being talked about. And at one point, they stop and ask, well, Greg, what do you think? And I was like, I think I don't belong at this table yet. Right? This table, the kids' table, I'm missing all the food throwing and that kind of stuff. But the fact that in my mind, I was there sort of as a, as a, as a spectator. But in their minds, they wanted to know what I thought. They wanted to hear my input too. That they were inviting me not to just sit at the, at the grown-up table, but to be a participant in what was happening at the grown-up table. And I think there's the same thing that happens with us. When we respond to God, He invites us to come back to the table and to sit. And as we grow in our faith and all that stuff, we begin to interact with Him in new ways. That He asks us things like, well, what do you think? about that. At one spot in the Gospels, one of my favorite spots is Jesus asks someone, he says, what do you want? What? We never think about Jesus asking us things like that. What do you want? Ah, amazing stuff. So anyways, um, there's this movement back to God, back to the table. Um, Now, the ways we typically respond in that process, one is thanksgiving. These are all verses, uh, not all of the verses, but these are just some examples of spots where people have responded to all this work done by God with thanksgiving, okay? What surprised me is First and Second Chronicles have a lot of thanksgiving in them, which is cool because I think we just think of them as like not very interesting, but go read about thanksgiving there. Uh, so one of our responses is thanksgiving, and whether it's because you have an understanding, some people it's like, I'm aware of my sin, and I'm, I feel guilty, and all this stuff, and, and, and this, there's this sense of freedom in, in the work that Jesus has done, that, that, and in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that we, that we don't have to be held by that anymore. Like the passage in Galatians said, we're no longer slaves, but there's a sense of freedom and a reality of new life there, and so we're thankful. But for other people who may not be aware of that, there could just be the reality of I get to interact with the creator of the universe, and I'm excited about that, and I'm thankful for that. So for most people, there's a response of thanksgiving that happens in this process. The other thing, as I mentioned before, is this idea that we are able to say Jesus is Lord, and that's by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that that's one of our responses that takes us back to the table. Now, what happens, though, when we're at the table— uh, this is in John nine thirty five and 38. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. He's talking to a, a guy. And when he had found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And so our life... In, at the table is involved with worship, prayer, faith, and then gifts of the Spirit, which are all present in just this one passage, right? We read at the end, right? Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. We have this response of adoration towards God. We have this response of naming him for who he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and all those things, the bread of life. When we start naming him, it's worship. Our lives become centered around God, and we become oriented towards God. And so our very lives and how we live also become an act of worship, just as much as when we gather together and we sing and listen to music that is designed to help us uh, honor and, and adore God. So there's worship involved. Prayer, if you believe uh, that uh, lots of times when we talk about prayer, we say that prayer is just talking with God. If that's true, if that's what you believe, then every time someone talks with Jesus in the Gospels, that's prayer, which to me I find amazingly freeing because I look at some of the questions that people ask Jesus, and it makes me feel like I can ask him just about anything, which is freeing. I don't feel like I have to come with a script. And so even here, you know, Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he, sir? 
tell me so that I may believe in him. How many times have we asked Jesus, like, Jesus, who are you? Show me more of who you are. Maybe even we've said something like, if you would show me this, I would believe more, or I would do more. That's a very similar prayer to what this man is praying. Okay, so prayer is involved here. Faith, it says, then the man said it in verse 38, Lord, I believe. Faith is involved. And then the gifts of the Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit, specifically in this one, faith, interacting and empowering in a way where someone can respond to Jesus. I do want to say on a side with that too, that the gifts of the Spirit, the other ones that are going to come up in a second, things like the speaking in tongues and prophecy and hospitality and teaching and all of them, they all have a sense of intimacy and a sense of closeness with God when we're operating in those. There's a sense we're participating with Him. So just like... um, you know, uh, the, the image I think of is of um, the other day I was cooking, uh, I was making some pizza, um, and, uh, and I'm learning how to try to spin, throw pizza. Uh, and so the girls, my daughters, were in there helping me, right? And we're throwing pizza all around, which is awesome until you have to try to clean it up. Um, but what happened was is we were all together having a great time. So there's a sense of participating together and working together uh, creates great intimacy. And so when we're participating, especially in the, in the exercising of the gifts of the Spirit, there is a closeness to God that comes from that. Now, so all of that's going on, but then what? Does it just stay there? No. It moves now from this space of being at the table when we've been worshiping and praying and growing in our faith and the gifts of the Spirit are operating. What we discover is that God's whole big deal is reconciliation, reconciling all things to himself. And so now we're moved to this place where we say something like, I kind of want to be part of that. And God says, that's awesome. I would love for you to be part of that. And so he sends us out. And so we go back to humanity. Okay, we go back to other people whether it be in, in fellowship with other believers or going out to, to, to reach out to people who don't know Jesus, the movement is back to humanity. We're now participating with God in his big plan. One of the main ways this happens, just like I said, is witness and fellowship. Um, this verse from 2 Corinthians is, just blows my mind. Uh, 2 Corinthians five sixteen through 21. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If I think about the different ways the world uh, interacts with other people, we have issues of uh, rampant pornography where people are being used. Um, I think of the ways we interact with like professional athletes. Let, let them entertain us, and then when they can't fulfill that function anymore, we just sort of move them off to the side and go to the next athlete who entertains us. Um, We no longer view anyone, regardless of what they believe, think, how they act, whether we would consider them friend or enemy. We no longer regard anyone, no one, from a worldly point of view. Because though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. That old way of viewing people is gone. We are a new creation, and we no longer view people that way. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are Christ's ambassadors. 
The thing about that is we have to be going somewhere and interacting with someone to be an ambassador because an ambassador that's just sitting around thinking about things is not being an ambassador. Right? The role of an ambassador is to go out and speak and interact on the behalf of somebody. And the thing in this that just... So aside from that, not regarding anyone in a worldly point of view, and we come down again to the bottom uh, in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the question I want to ask you is what might God want to make you in order that someone else could know him? And would you be willing to do that? Right? I'm scared to hear that. Because what if God's going to ask me to do something that's really difficult? Or what if he's going to ask me to go hang out with people I don't like? Or people that are annoying? Or people who I see as being against the gospel? What if God's going to say, I'm going to make you their friend if you're willing. I'm going to make you the one who loves them if you're willing. So that they might become the righteousness of God. What would it be like if we walked in that? Okay. Again, the gifts of the Spirit are present in all this because as much as there is a connecting with God aspect to the gifts of the Spirit when you think about them there's always uh, somebody else involved right when you're speaking in tongues especially in a group setting like this it says someone's got to interpret someone else has to be involved if there's prophecy and you're just prophesying by yourself someone is supposed to hear that words of knowledge they're usually involving someone else how can you be hospitable when there's nobody else around if it's teaching you got someone else has to be around right there is a huge outward component to the gifts of the holy spirit okay so again the trinity involved outward sending empowering it's what god is all about this is the last verse we're going to look at, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, this is Romans 12, 3 through 8. It says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us, if a person's gift is prophesying, let them use it in proportion to, proportion to their faith. If it is serving, let them serve. If it is teaching, let them teach. If it's encouraging, let them encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let them give generously. If it is leadership, let them govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let them do it cheerfully. And what I want us all to see, right in the first line, for by the grace given... Something's been given. Something's been given by God. And if you go through here... You see a lot of these, right? Go down about five lines, right before it's the end of verse 3. Um, with the measure of faith, God has given you. Okay, we keep on moving down. We have different gifts. Every time the, the word given, gift, or anything like that is mentioned, different gifts according to the grace given us. If a person's gift is prophesying, if a person's uh, gift is serving, let, you know, if it's teaching, if that gift is teaching, if that gift is encouraging, if that gift, if that gift, if that gift, and we go through and we see that God has given in a ton, but the uh, intention of that is that we do something with it. Again, back to the very first sentence. For by the grace given me, I say... By the grace given to Paul, he says something. 
Okay? Don't think of yourself in a way you shouldn't in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. God has given you faith so that you can think about yourself differently. Okay? Keep on going down. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a person's gift is prophesying, let them use it. If it's serving, let them serve. If it's teaching, let them teach. If it's encouraging, do something, encourage. If it's contributing, do something. Contribute to the, to the needs of others and give generously. If it's leadership, do something. Govern diligently. If it's show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Oh, those circles aren't supposed to be there anymore. How'd they get there? That would have been helpful. Last time they didn't show up. Anyways, so that says that, but they're all off. So um, we're just going to click right. There we go. So now... We've gone through all of that, and it's wonderful because as a church, we have a history of loving things like this. We love diagrams and charts and circles and arrows and labels, and we love to dwell deeply on the theological realities of what it means to follow God and be His people in this world. We love it, and it's one of my favorite things about this church. It has been for the uh, 16, 17 years that I've been part of this church. I think, though, a lot of times we stop right here. And I want to press us today to move beyond thinking deeply to acting and moving. Now, I'm fully aware that I have just done a PowerPoint presentation with circles and diagrams and all those things. But the point of all of this is to show us that there is this movement on God's part that he calls us into to sit at the table and then to go. To go into all the places where we are. Whether it be the coffee shops and grocery stores, the skate parks, the schools we're at, our job, wherever. To go and to be outward. When I... uh, uh, was doing my campus ministry internship up in Bellingham. I lived in a community house. Um, and uh, there were uh, the people I lived with on the top two floors, and then in the basement there was uh, a, a large multi-generational family, uh, grandkids, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, a whole bunch of people, like 20 of them, lived in this basement apartment. Um, And one day I came home and there was a discussion happening that I quickly jumped into. So when I say, I I don't want to say it like I wasn't part of it. Um, I wasn't there for all of it, but I quickly jumped into it. Um, This day, the grandmother and this toddler, this probably two and a half year old, were the only ones home. And the toddler was sick. And so the grandmother had come upstairs and uh, she didn't speak really any English, but she was communicating that the, the toddler was ill and that she needed some help. She was hoping for a ride is what it seemed like. Uh, to the hospital or to a doctor. Uh, a conversation started about, well, how can we make that? And, and, and in the probably 10 minutes or so it took to make that happen, she had gone next door and found someone who would take her to the hospital. Now, the thing that happened next was there was like a two-hour conversation about when is it appropriate to help? When is it appropriate to serve? That, uh, is it okay? Well, maybe I'm just not feeling like it today. So it is, is God okay with me not helping? Did, did God give me space? And maybe God had that neighbor next door. Maybe they were supposed to help. And that's, you know, sort of God's affirmation of, no, it was okay for me not to help. Um, now, there are legitimate reasons not to help. Maybe you don't have any way to get there. Maybe you didn't know where the doctor was. Maybe there are some things that were, you know, you're sick yourself. Maybe there's some legitimate boundaries. But all of those, in my mind, were obstacles to also having a two-hour conversation 
about when it's appropriate to help. And so what I felt like was we got really locked up in trying to figure out when it's appropriate to help, and that actually kept us from being able to help. And I feel like that is often a place we as a church get to. Now, I also had uh, the privilege of, of working with a good friend of mine for many years in campus ministry. And on the campuses they were at, they were often sought out as sort of an evangelism specialist. Right? They, they had read all the books, the current books on evangelism theory, and they knew how to talk to Generation X and Millennials and everyone in between, and they knew all that stuff. Right? They were, they were up to speed on all of that stuff. Um, but what I saw this person consistently do was simply love people. Over and over and over and over. There was a guy down the hall from our office who he... Uh, he worked on cameras, but he only worked on cameras that were really old, um, like from the 50s. Um, and he was from Germany, and he would come down to our office, and in my mind, he would hijack like two hours of your time if you let him, okay? But this person would not just, not just sit and entertain their stories because it was the, the godly thing to do, but was legitimately interested and would ask questions. What was that like? How, well, how did that happen? What did that feel like? Because they loved this person. It was simple. It wasn't a theory. It was love. It was their heart. It was an attitude of their nature because they understood this. They were in relationship with God. God had loved them, and they knew that God loved this guy down the hall even though he was annoying as all get out. Ridiculously so at times. Not a shred of that ever showed up on my friend because he loved this person. What would it look like if we loved the people around us, not just tolerated them? What does it look like to really love, even when they don't believe what we do, even when they don't act the way we want them to, even when they seem to be actively working against what God is doing? What does it look like to love our enemies? We learn that by sitting at the table. We learn that by, by responding and getting to the table and hearing from God and sitting with Him. But it cannot stop there. It's always an outward movement. I told you before the story of when I was a boy and I would wrap my arms around my parents' leg, legs and scream, my house, my house. Okay, and again, if I look back at that and I'm like, I wanted to be in that love, and I've used that as, a, as an analogy to look at how the Trinity works and our response to it for a long time. And I probably still will, but I'm going to tweak it because as, as adorable as that response was, and I give myself a lot of grace for being a three-year-old, uh, but as an adult, I look back on it, and what I now want to say is, like, everyone's house. Right? I want to walk at that table and go, everyone, this is your place too. Every one of us, every single person, every aspect of creation should be sitting at that table enjoying fellowship with God. What are you going to allow God to do with you in order to be part of that? I have a couple of questions that I just, I want you to even close your eyes for a moment. I want you to just think of who are the people that you cross paths with? whether it be a, a book club or people at the gym that you just see there all the time. Who are some people when I say that? What are just some groups that pop up into your head? And then even from that, who are some specific people that you think of? Maybe it's your, your 
barista at that one coffee shop that remembers your name or maybe it's the person you cross paths with when you're walking the dog or you're dropping your kids off at school and you you sort of bump shoulders with those different parents maybe it's someone in a class that you notice or maybe someone in the cafeteria who you always notice is sitting alone who are some specific people out of those groups that come to your mind And I want you to allow this to be a moment where the Holy Spirit is operating and actually saying, it's not just uh, random that those people came into your mind, but I'm actually asking you to do something to interact with those people, to love those people, to care for those people, to reach out to those people. And then I want you to think of one concrete, tangible way you could do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you great thanks. Lord Jesus, I give you great thanks. Holy Spirit, I give you great thanks. I thank you for the relationship that exists within you, that you invite us into. Lord, I confess that after that, the process for me is is, is scary. Because I'm afraid of who you might ask me to go hang out with. Lord, if it's just my friends, awesome. But there are some people that are difficult to be with. There are some people that I don't like. There are some people that I disagree with. And I don't have an understanding for how it actually be possible for me to love and care for them. But I also believe that your word says that perfect love casts out all fear. And so I pray that I would have a sense of the perfect love that exists within the Godhead, within the Trinity. And that, that would give me the courage to know that I've been loved in such a way, invited in, even when I was an enemy of yours, that you call me to go and do the same. I pray, God, you would give us a heart for the people who aren't sitting at the table with you, uh, and you would help us to go and love them well. I pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.